But we are in the home stretch of our Radical Unity series. So we've got our message today, which is a summary of Romans, and then we get into Paul's letters, and then we wrap up in two weeks in the book of Revelation, all seeing this New Testament theme of radical unity. So it's going to be a, a great time. And for those of you who are nervous about uh, Revelation, you're going to be so excited you came to that one. That is nothing but good news. So uh, that'll be a fun week for sure. That'll create a lot of discussion. Um, but uh, uh, we have got this, this, this New Testament survey going on through this fall ser- series. And, and there is a certain theme that is emerging with every single page that's turned in the New Testament. It's the big picture of what God is doing on the earth. It's the very point, the very cause of Christ we're seeing on display in the New Testament. But there are consequences if we miss the point. Uh, I'm going to show you a little uh, uh, slide of somebody who has clearly missed the point. Um, Yeah, he's not quite... That's funny. People of God, that's funny. The problem is not under the hood. He's missing the point. The problem is what's around him, right? And I fear that the Christian church is kind of looking under the hood and and thinking what's wrong because something is definitely wrong. Three generations have now largely rejected the institutional Christian church. Generation X, Y, and Z. They've said no thanks to the institutional Christian church. And the church is wondering why. I mean, the church is scrambling, truly, no joke, tens of thousands of books written about why the Western church is in trouble. And conference after conference, this last conference that we were in last week was about why is the church in decline? And everybody has opinions. It was a good conference, a lot of good takeaways, but it was kind of the same. Just, you know, preach a little better. And everybody's looking at me like, hey, that's on you, bud. Um, maybe it's about this program. Develop these programs better. Or uh, one person said, you just have to be more faithful to God. Pastors, if you're more faithful to God, then he will bless you by growing your church. I don't want to be too cynical. But after 35 years of ministry, I'm a little cynical. And maybe I want to be a little cynical. But at some point, you have to say, are we missing the point? Are we looking under the hood when the reality is that the Christian church is submerged? It's submerged. It is in crisis, and maybe it needs to be. Maybe the evangelical church in particular, maybe it needs to be in a little bit of crisis. Because perhaps we've missed the point. Perhaps we've missed the point. You see, the younger generations, X, Y, Z... They're just fine. They're very spiritual people. They believe in God. They believe in one God, and that God looks very much like the God of the Bible. They love Jesus. You talk to any younger generation about the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, and they're like, sign me up. You want to go to church? No thanks. No thanks. Why is that? Because the reputation of the church, which in large part is deserved, I'm not saying every church has to you know, totally reinvent itself or every church is missing the point, But by and large, the church has come across as a stale, lifeless religious institution that judges people and is angry and is bitter and causes division. And the younger generations want to see unity. Younger generations are investing themselves in things that bring people together. And the church is one of the last institutions going, you know what? We're kind of just fine being apart. Something that is... You know, very clear in my mind is, is this reality that I don't think Jesus came to create separate clusters. Jesus didn't come to create communities that cluster separately, disengaged from the world. If you analyze the life and ministry of Jesus, you cannot conclude that he wanted to create Sunday morning worship services. Now, I love me some Sunday morning worship service. I do. I get up every Sunday morning and I get up very early and I'm excited to be here with you all. But Jesus didn't come to create Sunday morning clusters In fact, Jesus came to unite the whole world to God by his forgiving grace. 
and create a new global community radically united in loving people the way Jesus loved us. Doesn't that sound good and refreshing and right? That's why Jesus came. And so the church may have missed the point along the way, and we've got to get back to this simple reality that Jesus came to bring radical unity with God and us and radical, radical uh, unity among all of humankind. And so here we are in this fall series, and we're skimming the New Testament. I mean, this is about as, as quick as you can go. Uh, it's maybe not even be responsibly quick, but we're catching the big picture theme of the New Testament. So we looked at the Old Covenant contained in the Old Testament, which was really about division, separating people out, separating a nation, separating them out religiously and culturally and even ethnically. ethnically. And then Jesus comes, fulfills the Old Covenant, and brings a whole new covenant of sacrificial love and kindness and grace and goodness and mercy. And Jesus is the epitome of radical unity sent by God as the Son of God to bring a whole new way of looking at life. So we looked at the life of Jesus that brought radical unity. We looked at the teaching of Jesus. We looked at the prayer of Jesus in John 17 where he's pleading with his heavenly Father that the world would be united with God as Jesus is united with the Father and that we would be united with each other in the same way. Then we looked at the death and resurrection of Jesus that took away all barriers between humankind and God. He took away all barriers. He took away sin. He took away the the temple. He took away the priesthood. He was the full embodiment of the entire old covenant, everything that separated us from God. He died for that and rose again in a new life of love, an eternal life of love that continues to pour through us today. Then last week we looked at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is this struggling new church. Jesus is resurrected. His spirit is with this new church. And the more diverse it gets and the bigger it gets, the more conflict arises. And there was a huge conflict we detailed last week between the Jews who had followed Jesus and Gentiles, non-Jews, who were trying to get in the faith. Now, it was stunning that people who weren't Jewish would want to follow this Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, but they wanted to come. The message of Christ, the life of Christ, the message of the resurrection of Christ was so compelling, the whole world was wanting to believe in Jesus. But the Jews said, I don't think so. You've got to become Jewish. And they solved the problem together, Acts 15, 19. And so my judgment, Peter says, is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is stunning. This would be stunning even today if somebody said in church, I'll just say it in church, let's make it easy for people to believe in God. The religious hardcores would say, no, it's got to be difficult and you've got to, you know, repent of your sin and you've got to believe all these things and you've got to get your act together and you've got to kind of comply with our rules. And they didn't have that attitude. They said, let's make it easy for people to believe in Jesus. Let's take down all the religious rules. Let's, let's not put the Mosaic law, the old covenant, kind of the old Testament on people who want to believe. Let's not lay that on them. There's a whole new covenant here. And it's a covenant of sacrificial love received by faith, not by religion, not by works. Acts 15, 25, we've decided and have come to complete agreement. They made a compromise and said, let's welcome everybody in. Fling the doors wide open, let's welcome them in. It was an exciting thing. The Jews said to the Gentiles, we're not gonna lay the old covenant on you, the commands on you, the Old Testament on you, but we do ask you that you help us out here. We do not like it when you sacrifice, or when you pay for meat sacrifice to idols, and we don't like this sexual hedonism that is just kind of gross, using sexuality uh, to impose your power on somebody, or use sexuality, use people for your own sexual pleasure. You know, can we work towards something different? And they work together to make it happen. Radical unity, 
a relationship between Jew and Gentile by the love of Christ that continues to make church a reality today. Why would they do that? Why would they, they compromise in this way? Why would they compromise their traditional backgrounds? Why would they compromise their uh, religious backgrounds? Why would they yield so much of who they were for the benefit of another person? Why would they do that? They didn't have to. In fact, that was more difficult for them to do that. They could have just said, you know what, forget you. You go do your Gentile thing. We'll go do our Jewish thing. And we will not continue to meet together. Let's just make it easy. They could have done that. Something was compelling them to get together. Something was compelling them to pursue the very difficult road of radical unity. What was that? Well, it was theology. It was theology. It's what they believed. They understood rightfully and biblically that God's heart was to bring people together. They understood by following Jesus that that's the purpose for which he came, to bring radical unity with God and radical unity with each other. So they were compelled by what they believed to be selfless and kind and sacrificial and pursue a kind of radical unity that likely had never been experienced before in all the earth. It's incredible what they did. The bottom line is theology matters. Theology matters. It matters what we believe because what we believe determines our worldview, which shapes everything we do. I'll give you just a couple of quick examples. If our theology holds that God is a vindictive, angry God who must punish every sin. And some of us might say, well, we were raised in that environment. Um, that God is an angry, vindictive God who must punish every sin. If, we, if that's our theology growing up, through children's ministry and youth ministry and through our influences, well, how are we gonna then view God and, and our relationship with him? I'll be under God's condemnation when I don't do something right. I've gotta work my way back up to God and then that's gonna spill out in our, in our relationships. When we get married, it's going to be based on how we behave. I expect you to meet my needs. If you don't, I'm going to punish you. That's our worldview based on our theology pouring out. That's how we're going to raise our kids, based on rules and regulations and punishment. Punishment-based, fear-based. Our theology makes all the difference. If you were raised in a theology that says what God really wants is for you to believe all the right things. God's desire is for you to believe all the right things. Well, how are we going to grow up? We're going to grow up wondering, do I believe everything right? Do I have everything right? Maybe I don't believe right, or maybe I don't believe sincerely. What if I die and I, I fail the test at the, at the gates of heaven? Am I going to go to hell forever because I don't believe all the right things? And then that's going to impact how we live our lives. It's going to be about being right all the time. Theology matters. Theology matters. So here we are in the book of Romans. We're going to fly through the book of Romans, which is almost a sin in and of itself. It's the most theologically rich book of, of the Bible, and maybe second to Hebrews. It's an amazing book of theology. And so we're going to skim it. So I, I do this with a great amount of guilt. We spent a whole summer in, in Romans. I could spend the rest of my career on Romans. But we're going to just see the big picture. Here's the context of Romans. You've got this Jewish church that had followed Jesus. They were persecuted out of Jerusalem, and they went up to Antioch, a city uh, north of Jerusalem by maybe a couple hundred miles. So they resettled their base in Antioch. From Antioch, Jewish missionaries were sent into the Roman Empire, all throughout the Roman Empire, to spread the message of Jesus, first to, Jewish, to Jews all over the Roman Empire. But then over time, Gentiles, non-Jews, started believing in Jesus also. And it was this, this wonderful phenomenon that just emerged by the Spirit of God in all these cities throughout the Roman Empire, including Rome itself. 
So here you have this, this church in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. The church began as a group of Jewish Christians. Then Gentiles start believing in Jesus. This creates some conflict. Different race, ethnicity, culture, everything. Now the reality is the Jews were the leaders of the early church. They were in charge. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. They were Jewish by religion. And so they practiced the Jewish religion, but then allowed non-Jews to enter. And the non-Jews were certainly under the leadership of the Jews. In around 49 AD, Emperor Claudius had enough of the religious debates around Christianity. Christianity started to become a little bit of a movement. Uh, Some Romans were coming to faith in Jesus. That was unacceptable, unacceptable. Rome crucified Jesus as a traitor, and now Romans were following Jesus as the savior of the world. Not acceptable. There was also fights because Jewish non-Christians were fighting Jewish Christians and creating all kinds of chaos. So Emperor Claudius said all Jews out of the city, literally kicked all the Jews out of the city. So you have a Roman church that was led by the Jews with a few Roman Christians. They're kicked out of the city. Now what happens? The Romans own their own church. The Romans are now in charge and they're leading and they're, they're shaping that church to be a little more Roman in culture rather than Jewish in culture. Jews are gone for about five or six years before Emperor Nero says, you are now welcome back, Jews, into Rome. So you can imagine now, the Gentile church for five or six years now takes leadership. They've set the culture of the church. Now the Jews are allowed back in. And what do they want to do? They want to lead. They want to take over. And the Romans are saying, I don't think so. You've been gone for a while. This is our place. Fighting fighting, fighting. That is the context of the book of Romans. So the Apostle Paul starts with this incredible expression of the power of the gospel, the power of theology. Here's how he starts. Romans 1.16. Paul, this missionary, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You see what Paul is doing here? He's buttering up both sides. Every single syllable of the Apostle Paul is geniusly inspired by his hand, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, every syllable is so precise and so intentionally trying to, trying to make this culture of division into a culture of unity. So what does he do? He says it's about the gospel. Uh, the gospel is a, is a funny word. It's an old English word that unfortunately was not translated into modern English, and it simply means a good announcement. A good announcement. Paul says there's a good announcement out there, and that good announcement is the salvation of everyone. Everyone. You see what Paul's doing? It's not about you Jews. It's not about you Gentiles. This message that we celebrate is for everyone. Yes, first for the Jew. So it gives the Jew the pat on the back. Yep, you were there first, but also to the Gentile. Now, everyone, Jew or Gentile, are children of God by faith, not by blood, not by religion. You see what Paul is doing here? The gospel unites. What is the gospel? What is this good announcement? Here's my best effort at making it short. We are united now and forever to a loving God by the work of Jesus Christ. That's about it. The work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection took away all barriers between man and God. So there's a radical unity between us and God by the work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the basis of the gospel. Now, believing this means a new life of love received and love given, referred to in the Bible as salvation. So God removes all barriers between him and humankind through Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant law. He is the temple. He is the high priest. He fulfills it all. And, and, and so now it's on the shelf fulfilled. Nothing stands between man and God. Nothing. When we believe in that, that's salvation. To know we're loved by God and then given the capacity to love others. That's this announcement. And then Paul starts detailing the major tenets of this gospel. And he begins with this truth. We are radically united by our need for grace. We're radically united by our need for grace. Paul starts out by essentially telling us all, we are all failures. We have guilt, every single one of us. Not a single one of us can claim that we're better than the others. And he starts with the Gentiles. He starts with the Romans. Here's what he says. It's a fun little list. You ready? You might want to memorize this passage. Romans 1.29. Roman culture, my words, has become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, like disobeying their parents. My daughter over there, she's not. She's ditching this one. Oh, boy. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's the Gentile church. That's the Gentiles. That's the Roman culture. And you can almost hear the Jews going, go get them, Paul. Go get them. You know, they're a mess, right? They're hedonists. They're full of sin and wickedness and debauchery. Go get them, Paul. And Paul does. Then he looks to the Jews. Okay, Jews, my words. You have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And the Jews who are all buttoned up in their religion, right? They're, they're obeying all the law of Moses and they're obeying all the religious tenets. They're doing what they think they're supposed to be doing. The Apostle Paul says, listen, you're just the same as the Roman hedonists. It's just buried by your religion, but it's still in your heart. Jesus had a lot to say about that on the Sermon on the Mount. You are, you are so religious and, and seemingly perfect on the outside, but you have the same heart. And so Paul kind of goes after the Gentiles a little bit, and he goes after the Jews a little bit, and he says, okay, now are we done? Now, by the way, if you just read through Romans 1 and 2, you would think that everybody on earth is condemned in the most incredible way. That's exactly the point. Paul is causing us all to feel as though none of us has any right to judge another person. He's not grinding us into earth, you know, sinner, 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 sinner. He's not, he's not doing that to grind us down. He's doing that so we won't lift ourselves up to be arrogant or proud or judge another person. And so he ends this section in Romans 3.23 in a very famous verse. He says, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. It's pretty simple, right? Jews, you're judging Gentiles. Gentiles, you're judging Jews. How about you stop that? And how about we all realize we are equally flawed? And can we do that right now? Can we just all recognize in our hearts that we are equally flawed and none of us has a right to judge another person? If you don't trust Romans all that much, trust Jesus. Matthew 7, 1 through 3. Jesus says, do not judge others and you will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? This is hysterical. This is hysterical Hebrew humor, exaggeration, hyperbole. And everybody's laughing. Oh, wait, he's talking about me. We're all prone to judge other people. We all love to judge. And I'm telling you right now, big confession, I love to judge myself as much as anybody. I love to judge. It's fun to judge somebody else's behavior. 
All right, look what that person did. That's dumb. What are we doing? It's fun to judge their behavior, but we're also lifting ourselves up. Hey, I'm not that dumb. It's fun to judge somebody's religious beliefs. And I'm telling you, I confess, I hang around pastors. I'm sorry, I do. And you know, you get some pastors together and in about five minutes you're judging, oh, that church believes this, oh, that church believes that, and you kind of chuckle. What are we saying? They're wrong. <laughs> Can you believe somebody believes that? We're right. It's fun to judge somebody's personality. It's fun to judge parenting. I mean, I'm telling you, that's a party. Uh, my wife and I were out on a date not too long ago, and we just found ourselves kind of slipping into judging other people's parenting. It's like, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're just as dumb as anybody else. So, but it's fun. You know what my favorite kind of judgment is? This is my favorite. My favorite judgment is judging those who judge. I love that. I'm doing it right now. That's what this whole, this whole sermon's about that. This whole series is about that. Right? I love that. That's like my sweet spot is to judge people who judge. But then you're trapped because, you know, how do you, if, if, if somebody's causing division through their judgment, how do you do that without judging them? It's, we're trapped. And I don't know how to do it well. I fail at this very often. But we're all radically united by our need for God's grace. No one of us can stand above the other and say, I'm better than you. None of us. Secondly, the Apostle Paul details that we are radically united in our justification by grace. Justification is a highfalutin legal word, but Paul uses it. Justification means to be made right. So first he says, we're all equally in need of God's grace. We are all full of failures and flaws and sin in our lives. That means we're all equally justified by grace. And he details this in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4.16 says this. The promise of salvation for all is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith. Paul's making it very clear here that we cannot be approved by God, by our good works, by obeying the laws, by obeying the Ten Commandments, by, by being religiously devout. We cannot earn acceptance from God in and of ourselves. He has to give it to us. And he gives it to us freely in Christ Jesus took away every barrier between us and God, including forgiving our, our sins. And by believing that, by accepting that, by receiving that, we live that saved life. We receive the love of God and have the capacity then to love others. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been made right with God in his sight, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. I love that. God makes us right. That's what justification is. He makes us right. He's the one who does all the action, and we are the ones who passively receive it. That's the gospel. God does all the work actively. We just passively receive it by faith. It's an amazing truth because most everybody who has been raised in any religion, including the Christian religion, might think that they've got to earn their way to God by their good behavior, by their religious works. We talk about this a lot. It's the central point of every book in the New Testament. It's the central point of Jesus' ministry, of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and it's the central point of the book of Revelation we'll see here in a couple of weeks, that because of the grace of God, we are all united with God and receive that by faith, not by works. Peace with God is for everyone, received by faith. It's so simple, this should never be compromised. If people believe, this is a theological foundation, if people believe that God is good, that God is loving, that he's a heavenly father who forgives us as a free gift through Jesus Christ, when we receive that, that is salvation, that is freedom. It is freedom from religious oppression, freedom from the laws, the rules, the regulations, and it's freedom to live a life of love. And that's Paul's third point. We are radically united as we grow in grace. 
We're radically united by our need for grace. We're radically united by justification by grace. And we're radically united to grow in grace. I get this question at least once a week, probably daily. This week it'll be daily, I'm sure. People will come up to me and say, hey, listen, this is a grace-based church, and it is. We have been preaching grace, grace, grace. We believe grace transforms, right? So people will say, hey, with all this grace, does that mean anything goes? Does that mean we can do anything we want to? The Apostle Paul answered that question. Romans 6, 1 through 2. Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? What's the answer? Of course not. When Paul or Jesus say, of course not, what they mean is that's a stupid question. It's a stupid question. Because grace doesn't beget harm. That's the assumption here. There's so much grace, that means that somebody is going to take advantage of that and cause harm to somebody. It doesn't happen. We've been preaching grace thousands of times around here. Never once, never once has anybody come up to me after church and said, Pastor, I want to thank you for that very fine message, sir. And that message of grace means I get to do whatever I want today. I get to cheat on my spouse. I get to mistreat my kids. I get to be mean to my boss. I get to steal, right? This is good. So fun. thank you, Pastor, for giving me the freedom to do that. <laughs> Hasn't happened once because it's a, it's a stupid assumption. Sorry for the word. Parents, you can correct me to your children later. But really, it's a stupid assumption to think that too much grace equals the freedom to harm someone. That doesn't make any sense. I've got my buddy Brad sitting over here. Good golfer, handsome man, nice guy. If Brad, every time he came into 11 o'clock service, punched somebody in the face, what are we going to say? He wouldn't do that. He's kind. What are we going to say? Oh, it's it's a grace-based church. Brad, keep punching away. Harder the better. Are we going to celebrate somebody harming somebody because we're a grace-based church? No. The most gracious thing we can do is to make sure people aren't harmed, right? So to assume grace results in harm is to miss the entire point. Grace results in grace. And it's a gracious thing to do to say, hey, Brad, stop striking people about the head and shoulders. Be gracious. We're going to care for the one who is wounded. We're going to correct the one who wounds, right? And if Brad continues to wound people despite correction, we might have to say, Brad, You're unsafe here. Come back when you're ready for restoration. You see how grace begets grace and how you can graciously walk with somebody, even somebody who has caused harm, you can walk with somebody towards restoration, but absolutely in every way, look out for the people who are harmed. This is just New Covenant, New Testament, Jesus-style living, right? Romans um, goes on to say, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live into it? We are free from being defined as a sinner because Jesus took care of it. We are free to receive God's grace, so we're defined as children of God. That compels us to live a life of grace. Romans 6.14 says it, says it this way. He restates it. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. The freedom of God's grace isn't, yay, I have the freedom now to harm somebody. It's, yay, I have the freedom now to love somebody. Well, then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Again, dumb question. Grace doesn't equal harm. Grace equals grace. So we're radically united in our need for grace. We're radically united in our justification by grace. We're radically united as we grow in grace. And finally, we are radically united as a diverse new family of grace. We're a diverse new family. And Paul in Romans chapter 8 details this. He says, listen, 
You've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. You're free from that. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. We're a family of faith together, Jew and Gentile, a family together. Now we call him father for his spirit joins our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. You can almost imagine the apostle Paul gathering this Roman church around and saying, listen, I know you've hated each other for thousands of years. Jews have hated Gentiles and Gentiles have hated Jews for thousands of years, since about 1800 BC when God called Abraham as his own unique you know, country. And for 2,000 years, you've hated each other, and you hate each other fiercely in the first century here. Fiercely hated each other. The Romans invaded your lands. The, the Romans murdered your people. The, the Romans are, are treating you as slaves, oppressing you with taxation, seizing your land. And I know you're trying to gather in this community of Christ followers, and you're con being confronted with how different you are, your race, your ethnicity, your religious practices, your traditions. You fiercely hate each other, but let the gospel, let the good news of radical unity bring you together. Let that happen. And how can that happen? Romans chapter 8. Your brothers and sisters. Like, seriously? <laughs> I, I'm a, I have a Jewish brother and sister, the Gentile says. The, Gentile, uh, the Jew says, I have a, a Gentile brother or sister. Yes, because you all have one father. You have the same father, the heavenly father who loves you, sent his only begotten son to remove everything that stands between you and God. That means there's nothing that stands between you and one another. Let love be the only thing that remains here. And then Paul just goes on with this equally poetic um, expression of love. You remember in Romans chapter one where he had that poetic expression of how evil the world is? He replaces that in Romans eight with a poetic expression of how loving God is. Now, this is a lot, but just take it in. You ready? Paul says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? What's the answer? Not to you got it. Does it mean he no longer loves us when we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears of today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that cool? Now why is he so passionate about God's love? He's so passionate about God's love because he knows if we know we are radically united by God in love, then we will be radically united by God's love expressed to one another. As we are inseparable from God in love, we are to be inseparable from one another. Despite our differences, despite our racial ethnic differences, despite our differences in how we were raised, our upbringing, our religious differences, our religious habits, our religious traditions, despite the differences in age and economy, despite our different politics, Radical unity can be ours. It can be ours. I'm going to show you a little example of radical unity that ha happened here in our own midst. It's a, it's a simple example, 
but we can begin to see through Al and Carol, we can begin to see what radical unity actually looks like and feels like, that there are decision points to be made. Uh, Al and Carol are uh, newlyweds here at Rancho, and we're very excited about this uh, cute, cute couple. But they made a decision to um, join Rancho in Espanol recently, um, our Spanish-speaking congregation, and uh, they had a good time. Take a look. I'm Al. And I'm Carol, and we're newlyweds. It's a little different for our age group, but everybody seemed to celebrate it greatly. Uh, we had been married to our first um, spouses for 58 years, each of us, and they passed, and uh, we were just happy, widow and widower, and then God put us together, and it fit, and we went for it, and we're taking the risk of age and all of that, but it's certainly worth it, and the good Lord is so in it, and we're so thankful. My children uh, went to camp a little bit, but they were born again before I was, and my eldest daughter led me to Christ, and they were in youth groups and going, and I'm going, what is this all about? I just saw what happened when they were in a happy, fun environment and how it stuck with them that they were, this is where they wanted to live their life, for Christ and with other people of the same uh, thoughts and, uh, you know, a spirit of love and giving. So I saw what camp can do. So we came to a service here and uh, naturally we were... <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was uh, speaking Spanish, you know. I, no en español, that's about the only thing I know. And uh, we, we really had, though, a wonderful time. Uh, we were uh, taking communion and uh, the little caps that they have, we couldn't get them open. And some nice man came over and helped us. We really felt comfortable. And then afterwards... Uh, we ran into Ernie, and uh, he, he, he said that they had just been talking with Maria about wanting to get involved in the youth uh, camp thing. Right. And it immediately, it, it filled a need, our need, and uh, so that's why we, we want to help. And also it... It came to, when we thought about it a lot, we thought, my word, how strange uh, the circumstances and how creative our good Lord is. That over here is Maria thinking, gee, it'd be great if my youth group could go to camp and have that experience. And then over here, it's old Al and Carol thinking, gee, we want to do something uh, to grow uh, this little something in the ministry, not knowing really what, and helping the youth. And then they, he put us together, and this is what God does. So it's just incredible. And we were so welcomed, uh, being kind of the odd couple in that service. Uh, you know, there we were, and you know, we got helped, and we got, uh, we just didn't leave. And I noticed how beautiful this, the service was. Uh, because afterwards, they all just didn't walk out and leave. They all gathered in the lobby and fellowshiped and talked. And I thought, oh, this is just beautiful. I think the good Lord wants us 
wants us out of the box to, to reach out to maybe something different that you're not accustomed to. I mean, we didn't understand a word in the, in the service, but we enjoyed it. And um, that just brings great joy to our hearts. Uh, it isn't being brave or anything. It's just doing what the Lord guides us to do and to do it, not to just sit and think about it. That's cool, huh? So here God put radical unity in their heart, and they're figuring out how can they express that, right? Go to Rancho Espanol and send a bunch of kids to, to camp. That's their part. That's their journey. God will guide you in your own journey. God will guide you to a spot where you may think to yourself, you know what? Radical unity to me means I'm going to mend a broken relationship in my family. I haven't talked to so-and-so in years. I'm going to reach out, and I'm going to build that bridge. Uh, there may be a, a, an age group that you're uncomfortable with. There may be a political group you're uncomfortable with. There may be a kind of person out there, ethnically, whatever, that you might want to build a friendship with. That take a risk. Be a little bit brave. And what does she say? Let's not just talk about it. Let's do something. Let's, let's go where God calls us to be agents of radical unity on this earth. Romans 12, 9 and 10 says this, and we'll close here. Don't just pretend to love each other. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with a genuine affection, and take delight in honoring each other. Let's pray. God, we thank you and honor you for your love for us. Thank you that, that you gave your son Jesus to bring a whole new vision of a whole new reality to this earth, what he called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is, is a new reality where everyone is radically united with you by grace alone. You did everything through Jesus necessary to clear the deck. There's nothing that separates us from you. There was nothing but love. And by placing our faith and trust in Jesus, we, are, we, are, we see that love, we experience that love, and then have the capacity to love others in the same way. Wherever we have in our hearts uh, an area of division, an area of judgment, uh, an area of pride, I pray that that would be removed by the work of your spirit, the power of your word, the power of the gospel, and that instead of causing divisions and separating, separating ourselves into clusters of sameness, we would be your agent of radical unity, building bridges with people who are very unlike us, forgiving, loving, caring for people, even the stranger, even our enemies, pouring out the radical unity of Jesus through how we live our lives. It's in his name we pray, amen.